Welcome to Cramspot. Your podcast on organized crime. Today, Cocaine's Gateway to Europe. With Dr. Lisa Bishop, Associate Professor at the Erasmus School of Law, Erasmus University, Rotterdam. With a music contribution by the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Crime Spot. On the mics, as, as usual, it's me, Felix, and on the other end of the line, separated due to COVID, is Esther. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crime Spot. We're so happy to have you with us. Um, this is the podcast in which Felix and I discuss current trends and phenomena of organized crime and how it intersects with our lives and society at large. And those of you who know us already may have realized that this episode didn't start with our usual jingle. And that's because today marks the third episode of a special series on cramps in our ocean, in which we usually use the music from the Outlet Ocean Music Project. Check out uh, our show notes. We have more information on this project in there. But without further ado, Esther, what do we have on the menu for today? So I was, I was saying this podcast is about discussing organized crime. And today we've decided to talk about cocaine trafficking because just a couple of weeks ago, a massive cocaine seizure of over 11 tons was made at the port of Antwerp in Belgium. And in this context, three active and one former police officer were arrested. And so we decided to today discuss how drugs are trafficked via maritime routes and how they are then distributed via land into Europe. And since we will look at how cocaine is being trafficked, we're going to specifically look at the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Yeah, and for that, we had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lieselot Bishop, whose name I'm butchering, no doubt, but she said she wouldn't mind. And yeah, Lieselot is an associate professor at the Erasmus University Rotterdam. More specifically, uh, she works for the Erasmus School of Law. And she recently published a very interesting study on how exactly cocaine is being moved through the port of Rotterdam. After all, this is Europe's largest seaport. But perhaps before we dial Lisa lot in, Esther, maybe you could give us a quick overview of cocaine trafficking to Europe in general. Absolutely. So very, very broadly, cocaine is produced in three main countries in South America, the majority of which about 70% is actually produced in Colombia and then followed by Peru and Bolivia. Then Meanwhile, we have two main consumer markets, which are North America and Europe. Although in recent years, we have noted that there have been an emergence of other markets, such as um, Australia, for example, or Japan. But the question is, how do you move cocaine from South America to Europe? So there are a myriad of different ways, but it does seem that in recent, in recent years, sorry, maritime um, routes and maritime transportation has been a preferred choice of transportation modality by organized crime groups. And so what they do, they either ship that cocaine directly from South American ports to European ports, or they transit via West Africa. When they arrive in Europe, there are four main points of entry, which are Antwerp in Belgium, Rotterdam in the Netherlands, Valencia in, in Spain, and to some extent, Pardon me, and to some extent, Hamburg in Germany. So obviously, these are four key ports um, in Europe. And as you said, Rotterdam is one of the is 
um, Europe's largest port. And so when that, once that cocaine arrives in these ports, it is then distributed via land, um, meaning via road travel through across the European territory. Super. And um, what would be the source for this? Maybe we could put something in our show notes for our listeners to follow up on if they wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So all of this information is provided in the World Drug Report, the latest of which is the 2020 edition. Um, and perhaps now we can dial in uh, Lieselot. She will be talking to us about her recent research called Getting a Foot in the Door, Spaces of Cocaine Trafficking in the Port of Rotterdam. Lieselot, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. And maybe as a first question, in order to get you to know you a bit better, how did you get into academics and what drew you to studying organized crime? So I was studying a master program in criminal, um, European criminal justice system and comparative criminology in Ghent University. And as a student there, I was asked by two of my professors whether I wanted to become their research assistant on a project which was actually about police leadership. So it wasn't about organized crime, um, but it did get me involved in, in, in doing research. And, and actually, I learned a lot because I had to interview mayors and police chiefs um, right out of school, basically. Um, so that was a good training for uh, qualitative research. And then um, I had an interest in, in, in already doing something more about environmental crime. Um, I wrote some project proposals and tried to get funding uh, for my own PhD project, um, which worked after two years. Um, so I worked as a research assistant on the police leadership programs first uh, for two years, and then I started my own PhD, which was about environmental crime. Um, so not necessarily organized crime. A lot of the aspects in there are corporate. Um, it was about illegal transports of electronic waste and um, tropical timber. But I did already do a lot of research in the port, in that case, Port of Antwerp, so that's where my later connection into studying organized crime in ports uh, does come into the picture, I would say. Yeah, and I do believe that a lot of the things that you just said really resonate with uh, your research and how your research reads, because it's not only um, one of those studies that is purely embedded in theoretical frameworks and is on this meta-academic level, but your research is really practical it's really applicable it has real life implications so my question is um how do you make sure that the insights you gain to which we will come in a minute but how do you make sure that these insights actually reach the right people so how do you break open those silos that often separate academia public policy and law right. enforcement um so i think overall organized crime research but also some other topics within criminology it's always rather close to policy um you study of course things that are about why does crime occur who's involved in this who's harmed but the question you also try to look at or, or some people try to look at is is how do you regulate this? How do you control this? How can we prevent this? Because that's always a question I like to ask as well, not just control, but also the broader prevention of, of the harm that occurs. Um, so I think both aspects, policy and research, have always been rather closely connected in terms of organized crime. Um, depends a little on how much you know about the history of it, but there is some level of Organized crime images being influenced by policy and by um, media images, which weren't always followed by researchers. And then researchers pointing out, you know, you need to be more critical. It's not all about the typical mafia, for instance. I mean, we're long past that one. 
Um, and so in the end, they kind of came, came closer together. So I think in this way, they've influenced each other. Um, but a lot of the research that I do and, and me and my colleagues do here in Rotterdam, we still try to be rather close to policy and law enforcement um, because they also ask us very practical questions as in come look at what we do and and kind of take an outsider's view because, of course, we're outsiders, but um, and also be critical about what we do. Try and see where, where we might, ha- might have blind spots or uh, where basically a t- theoretical analysis, because that's what we do, of course, could help us focus our law enforcement, but also aspects of our research here in the Port of Rotterdam were about the cooperation between public actors. So it's, um, yeah, in this regard, it's rather close, but that's also what, what I like about doing research. If it's, you see that you have some, or you have a potential to have an impact in practice, I'm, I'm not going to claim that we do. Um, but for, for this project specifically on cocaine trafficking in, in the port of Rotterdam or via the port of Rotterdam, I mean, it was for the mayor's office, the public prosecutor, the police and customs, they had asked to do research and then you, in the end, get to present the the results to them. Um, they also of course gave us access to, to a lot of, um, data, which was necessary to be able to do the research, um, and in the end, you see that they come up with an agenda of what they're going to try and implement in policy. And this was a little because of Corona that all got delayed quite a bit. But that's, you know, the current situation, of course. But it's then very nice to see in that agenda that you see quite a lot of points that you were like, wait, that's what we suggested they would do. And of course, now it depends on whether they actually get funding. Um, so in this way, you can you can have an impact or try to have an impact um, but I think the most, most rewarding part is there that actually one of the people who we had quite, uh, well, quite frequent connections with during the, the research said that um, in the end, afterwards, when we had the report, people would just walk into meetings carrying the report, the report physically or just, you know, mentally. Um, but at least they said, you know, this is what we base conversations on as well to, to look at our own practice. And so that's something that I, I found very rewarding as well. Absolutely. Actually, that's extremely encouraging because you often hear of agencies working in silo, no? And it's very encouraging to see so much interagency cooperation and that law enforcement would be receptive to intelligence and analysis that's provided by a a researcher. Um, It goes against all of the terrible narratives we hear, so... That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> at least, at least here in, in Rotterdam, we have a lot of agencies who are willing to give us access. And of course, we you need to figure out some things about security, and we have to be checked. And there's always some hurdles. And um, but they make an effort. But it's also kind of um, and I'm Belgian, so it's kind of weird to maybe to say this, but it's um, Rotterdam has this reputation in general of let's just try to get this done. And I think this is also part of it. Like, let's see what's possible. Let's see how we can make this happen. And I think this is part of it. That's also one of the big slogans. If you'd be in the city, um, make it happen. <laughs> it's a cliche, but it's, you know, it's trying to see where the hur- hurdles are, maybe trying to overcome them or finding a way to walk around them. Um, and so this, this is, I think maybe a unique situation for Rotterdam, but of course I'm biased because I work here. <laughs> No, it's a good place to work then. That's the conclusion. Um, But picking up on that, so for those listeners that don't know, you wrote an article about the port of Rotterdam and um, drug trafficking that goes through. Just very broadly, 
I guess, why choose the the port of Rotterdam? What role does it play along the drug trafficking chain and specifically the cocaine trafficking chain? So important to note that I wrote it together with two of my colleagues, so Richard Staring and, and Robbie Rox. So uh, it's a joint effort. Um, and so the port of Rotterdam is, well, I'm hoping people know this, but one of the most important ports in Europe, uh, one of the biggest uh, in terms of container throughput and, and also other goods that pass through here. Um, it's also known as the gateway to Europe. Um, and in that regard, it's unfortunately also known as the gateway for cocaine together with Antwerp and, and some other ports. But Antwerp and Rotterdam are, are one of the major ones um, or two of the major ones. And that's basically just the consequence of the economic reality. A lot of the transport that comes from countries that produce the cocaine or transit the cocaine um, they have a destination here and then Rotterdam or Antwerp are the first port of call, as it's called. Um, and in being the first port of call, you're also the first port that gets confronted with the risks of, you know, of that trafficking. Uh, so it's basically just a gateway into Europe, um, also for cocaine. They piggyback off of the legal flows um, and the system. It's The Netherlands is known to be a transit country. Uh, and in that regard, uh, Edward Klemans, one of the other organized crime researchers in the Netherlands, has called it also a transit crime country. Um, it's basically the good transit and transportation system that can be abused um, by criminals in this regard for cocaine or other stuff. So um, if you've ever been to the Netherlands, you, 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 it's visible, physically visible <laughs> um, that there's a lot of transport here. So. And a lot of trade. I guess there might be some history in that as well uh, for the Netherlands, being a, a big trading country, of course, in the past. Also, not always good trade. Picking up on what you just said, who are the actors typically involved in this kind of trafficking, especially um, when it goes to through the port of Rotterdam? So that, that's very varied. There's a lot of actors involved, but very like physically in the port um, you oftentimes and that depends a little on the modus operandi used you usually need someone um, on the inside um, who knows about the system either the government system in, uh, in terms of control um, or so customs or police or you know maybe some others or on the side of the um, the shipping lines and especially the container terminals so there's always somebody on the inside that needs to know where the container is and how it's going to go through the system, because you need to be able to physically locate your container if you want to get the drugs out in the port, that is. Um, and oftentimes that also is what happens. Um, in Dutch, we call them uithalers. And honestly, I haven't yet found a good word to translate it in English. Uh, I think we used pickers in the end uh, in the article. It's basically somebody who sometimes physically runs into or just drives into a port area, goes to the container, opens the door, well, breaks the seal, opens the doors, and takes bags of, of cocaine out of there, uh, usually duffel bags, and then runs them off the terminal. In some locations, you can physically do it this way in the port because some port areas are closely located to roads or the city. Um, that's the more historic ports. But then, of course, sometimes you need to drive it off because it's such a huge port area. Some other places, the mass flux is, is immense. Um, so you've got those people, both those that help in locating the container or help in bypassing the control system. And then you also need people to actually get the cocaine out. Um, but those are not the, I guess, 
big fish uh, is what some people in the police would refer refer them to. Um, there are people behind this that are organizing this as well, right? They're they're the ones that you know front the money, um, pay somebody to to give them a card, an access card to the port, um, that try to bribe someone uh, on the inside. So there's there's a whole lot of actors involved and. Honestly, that's something that we did not get a very good view of in our research. We tried to, uh, but we were also limited in the sense of we were basing it off of investigations that had been done. So you always have a bias in terms of what you see. Um, for future research, we do want to look more broadly. Um, but as this you know, part of research is also trying to find funding to do this, this would be a great project for somebody to work on long time. So like a PhD project, for instance, or a postdoc project where you try to get access more in, into the, the relational connections between the people involved. Um, maybe also talk to a lot of people working in the port to see how they are approached, because um, that's something that we had some information about, about who's involved and further connections. And, and based on the case files, we could see some connections to other people. Um, of course, we those were reported about anonymously, uh, but we saw some connections to other big cases that, cases that happened in, in the Netherlands. But we don't have a lot of insight into the kind of networks behind them or whether those are locally based, whether those are broader for the Netherlands, maybe even go across borders. And it's a combination of all of that, I would say. Um, but we don't have a lot of insights based on, based on our own uh, research. Interesting. And just picking up on that, and you may not have the have, have the data, but there has been an increase in cocaine trafficking towards Europe. Has there been concerns that have been ex expressed at the policymaking level or law enforcement level of the degree of infiltration of organized crime into European institutions and in specific, I mean, port authorities, I think that past investigations have shown that that is the case. But in terms of more, you know, even the Ministry of Justice, you know, is there a fear of that actually happening as cocaine trafficking intensifies? And I'll just add a quick second question <laughs> to that um, follow-up one. It's that in the in your article, you mentioned the the metaphor of doors to the port. So could you perhaps expand expand on that? Yeah. So on that first point, of course, this whole intertwinement of upper and underworld, that's, that's the whole basic, uh, well, fear or concern. Um, in the Netherlands, a lot of the policy focuses on so-called undermining, um, which is once again a horrible translation of a Dutch word. Um, under, undermining, it's called, is kind of subversive crime would be a translation. Um, serious crime is this broadening of the concept of organized crime. Um, but anyway, um, this is mainly about, indeed, how are there connections between the cocaine traffickers and people who are in the legal system? And that might be customs, police, um, but also legal businesses, notaries, real estate, you know, name it, and, and you're there. Um, so there are there are concerns, and there's also research being done on that, and there's also policymaking trying to focus on that in making um, both the public policy side and the corporate side more aware of what's happening. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look for a word now. It's called weerbaarheid in Dutch, which I'm trying to figure out now so you can cut this out later. Uh, anyway, it's about, uh, I know, resilience. <laughs> so they're making, trying to make these people more res resilient um, about what's happening. Um, but of course, that's a long-term process. And there have been cases, and also recently with the you know, all the all the um, encrypted 
data and communications that were found recently, there's a lot more information. There's several cases of corruption. It's not going to stay limited to the customs because customs was, was a big case here in Rotterdam in the past. Um, connecting to Ridwan Tachi, the name might say, uh, you know, you know, might ring a bell as well. Um, a big network connecting connected to him. He's on trial at the moment. Um, but there's other cases that, based on the Anchor chat data, uh, will come forward, and they've learned a lot on that. But so the fear is, well, fear. The reality, I guess, is is there. What many of our respondents said is that corruption is just involved in any case you come across, and corruption in the sense of not just public authorities, also private uh, actors. And so on, on the second part, is those doors to the port is indeed a, a metaphor we use. And actually, Anna Sergi was the, the first to use it in this way. Um, she did, does research on cocaine trafficking in, or drugs trafficking in general in several ports, like Genoa, for instance. Um, we use that as a metaphor because it helps, because it's sometimes really physically about doors, uh, just the physical gates to certain terminals, um, but also getting access to the actual container means you need to find the pin codes to the container to be able to, you know, to, to access them. Um, there's this entire physical security system in place. And if improvements have been made, but of course, there's still uh, there's still loopholes in that several several ones. For instance, if you, you use cargo passes to get into the port area um, and a lot of those now use biometrical data. So at least, you know, whoever is using it in front of you is actually that person. Um, but then, of course, the question is, do you also check the vehicle this person is driving um, to see if there might be somebody else in that vehicle? Um, or do you also have a system in place that makes sure that that person is supposed to be there at that time? And that's also another element of those doors, which is more of a, I guess, a virtual element um, in your information system. Do you make sure you log who is there? Do you log this? to check afterwards, or do you do this in, in real time? Um, yeah, if somebody's there and they're not supposed to be, maybe that should just ring an immediate alarm bell. But you're, of course, also dealing with the reality of a port where it might mean somebody who was not supposed to work today might have to come in to replace a colleague. So you need to adjust for, for a lot of flexibility there. So, but, so both a physical door and more of a virtual door in, in, in that sense um, but I think the most important one is, or not the most important, but a, a, an important implication is um, because of a lot of the physical doors and also these virtual uh, security doors are being closed or are, are closer than they used to be, uh, more closed than they used to be, um, this puts pressure on people. So you increasingly need people to open that door for you. Um, so that means the, the need for people on the inside is 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 higher than it used to be, I'd say. Um, you see a, a movement of uh, cocaine trafficking from certain locations to others. If there is more security in one, um, it might move to another. You know, this displacement effect is not, is not so weird in, in criminology, right? We know that this exists. And also people in the port are, are aware of that. Policymakers are aware of that. Um, but the question is, is it then displaced maybe to the people now? And, and does that raise new new worries or, or new vulnerabilities um, that you once again need to take into account? Um, because it's very hard if it's a massive port area. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people go into that area legitimately each day, um, both working for private companies and, and working for public authorities. So you need to have a very good system about who is supposed to be there. Um, 
but also, you know, you need to adjust for a lot of flexibility or, or need to take that into account because it's not just about people who actually have jobs on the terminals and are there, you know, so many hours a week. Uh, but it's also about somebody who is invited in to go fix something in a container ship. Um, those people also go in and out. Uh, somebody needs to go check something, maybe, um, I don't know, some safety issue, health and safety issue. And they're, they're, they're hired for that. They also need to go into the port. Somebody who's hired to clean. Somebody's a caterer. All of these companies and people have legitimate access, can use those doors that we use in the article uh, legitimately. Um, but how do you check whether they're supposed to be there? And so this is a lot of what we, we try to engage with in the report. But also in this, in this article, we, of course, took a more theoretical, theoretical lens to it um, and used structural embeddedness as a concept to, to analyze some of these things. Um, does that answer your question or you have further need for clarification? I think it it answers it, but at the same time, there's uh, a lot of uh, many things to unpack in, in what you just said. And I think we're going to move to structural embeddedness soon. But um, like I, I was tr trying to find a way to connect some of the things that you just mentioned. So for one, a um, couple of weeks ago, I think one or two weeks ago, we saw this massive seizure of 11.5 tons of cocaine in Antwerp. And then one of the analysis that we read about this, um, one of the points made by the author was also that increased security at the port of Rotterdam might contribute to the displacement of, of such shipments to Antwerp. So that, that really, I think, echoes um, what you just said. And then also about those uh, physical spaces that you mentioned and that you also pick upon on your um, uh, article, which are the food warehouses, the empty depots and the container terminals as physical spaces to store and pick up drugs. And I want to link that <laughs> with what you said before about the fact that you're biased in a sense that you only see what inv investigations saw and what investigations have been focused on. So this reminded me of this uh, survivorship bias, I think it's called, if I remember correctly, from statistics class. So I think applied to your example, that would be how do we know that those places that you found are the more, ones most at risk because you found them or the ones least at risk because you found them? Yeah. So there's several elements in, in what you're saying. So I'm going to try and, you know, uh, relate it to a couple of these, maybe relating to the last part. So this is, if I remember it well, kind of a confirmation bias. This is a specific version of confirmation bias, right? And there's there's a risk for that. And that's something that, that we also took into account in our research. We know that there's a reality that the, these places might be places that we know or we, we learned about based on, on, on the cases that we had. Um, but our research was, of course, not only based on, on, on actual case files, um, but it was also based on basically doing a hypothetical analysis. We took the logistical system, just the legal logistical system of the ports, and then did a vulnerability analysis of that. So try to see where, if you're a criminal, what would you need to do to get access? And so um, no matter which scenario you use, so whether you hide the container, or you hide the drugs inside the container, whether you put them in duffel bags, whether you drop it off the ship and go pick it up later, um, there's always a couple of bottlenecks that you have to pass in some way. And so we looked at the bottlenecks for each of those types of modus operandi, And then those container terminals and um, empty depots, fruit warehouses, those come back every time. Um, so that's where they, well, maybe not in the drop scenario, the scenario where they drop it off the ship, that's a bit different. 
Um, but so those those locations, I think also just purely hypothetically thinking about this um, are relevant. Now, one thing that it's important to be mindful about is our research focused on the port of Rotterdam. So this also means part of this, if you're trading drugs, you might be taking it to locations inland. Um, so some transit situation, some warehouse, somewhere further in the Netherlands, maybe somewhere else in Europe. Those are locations that might be vulnerable as well. But that was a conscious choice for our research not to focus on that. So in that regard, it's I think it might be both a choice of what to focus on and there is a risk of confirmation bias. Um, also with the authorities, because based on the cases they find, um, important is though that they also have combination of methods to check. So they do um, they do target them, and I can't say too much about the details of this, but they use this based on on certain risks of trades, trade lines, uh, types of products. Um, but they also do at random controls um, in terms of which containers they will they will check. So in this way, they learn also in terms of you know what might be our blind spots. And of course, there are um, other examples too. I mean, there are examples of actually drugs being shipped together with waste and many other products. So in that regard, just choosing the products, fruits as such, um, might might be a blind spot. Um, but it's important, of course, to be aware that the fruits is still, despite the fact that there might be blind spots, um, a type of produce that's just a high-risk product anyway. Uh, and the reason is a lot of that fruits, even today, is still shipped in, well, they call them refrigerator vessels, so reefer, uh, reefer vessels, um, so not in reefer containers, but actually con uh, cooled ships. Um, and so they're in bulk. Um, so they're in, in, on pallets and, and there's boxes of fruit on there, bananas or whatever it might be. Um, and in this way, it's rather, um, well, rather easy if you're a trafficker to put some drugs in there. Uh, and it might be smaller quantities. If it's bigger quantities, you might need other methods, I would say. Um, but um, we see that some of this, these trades have actually moved. They're not in Rotterdam anymore. Um, there's still some. Um, but now a lot of those are in, in, um, in Vlissingen, in another port. And you could see right after they'd moved, you also saw a lot of the cocaine actually shipping there or, or being found there instead of here. Um, so I think it's, it might be a combination of both, um, of, of both these things. And it's, of course, always good for us to be mindful about blind spots. And I can't say much about it, um, but there is currently a, um, an experiment running in the, Rotter in the port of Rotterdam. There was something in the news about that. So that's how much I can say based on what's in the news already. Um, and they're trying to counter this as well, trying to see if we do something completely different do we learn about our own blind spots? So in that regard, it's 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 very interesting to to see that there there's yeah they try to experiment too to see if there might be things that they don't know yet. Um, and on the, on what you raised earlier, um, those I mean, so we talked about the fruit terminals. Um, the other aspect is the empty depots. Empty depots are are places where containers are stored when they're empty. Uh, but also where containers are fixed in case something happens to them. You know, it's quite often that, you know, there might be something happening and they have to be fixed because otherwise they don't answer to the safety requirements anymore. Um, and those locations are not, well, there's not a lot of guards, for instance, but that's quite logical. I mean, it's an empty box. So the idea is why would you, just in terms of how much it costs, why would you have to guard an empty box? 
Um, and so that's where, um, where we saw in a lot of these locations that there were risks. They were being faced with um, people going onto those locations and actually breaking open containers and uh, getting the drugs out of the floors or the walls or uh, also the cooling part of a reefer container, sort of uh, um, a container for freezing or, or for uh, shipping um, perishable goods. And so they were confronted with a lot of that but partially maybe as a consequence of container terminals themselves becoming more difficult to access. Um, and these empty depots, um, they are in the meanwhile, actually, since we published the report, um, they're also working together much more to see if, you know, if they can learn from each other's um, experiences and, and maybe security systems. Some empty, terminal, empty depots have actually chosen to be located on terminal locations right now in the Maasvlakte. Uh, because in this way, they know they're at least behind a couple of lines of security anyway, instead of being very close to the open road, because that's where some are. Uh, you can still physically go to the port and, uh, and, and be right next to a container stack of, uh, of an empty depot. So that's, in this regard, they're, they're learning, but there are also just there's the reality of them still being a, being a risk factor because it's one of the modus operandi. So um, as long as those modus operandi are used... Um, they're useful to, to consider as, as vulnerable locations. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, some of those are further inland, might be completely different, um, might be completely legal companies that are abused for it. Um, there are cases, and that's based on, on a case in Antwerp, where um, drug traders had, I think, about 50 or 60 shipments of legal goods in place and they had all of those organized. And only after that did they start shipping drugs or trafficking drugs. But of course, if you've been trading legally so many times, in this way, they also know the system. Uh, this also means based on the customs checks, you're not going to be checked as frequently. Is you, if you're a first-time trader, there's a very good chance that your container is going to be scanned. Or at least the paperwork is going to be taken a closer look at. But if you're a trustworthy trader you know, there's less of a risk. There's just still this at random thing and they might come across you some other time. Um, but this also means that there might be a lot of legal businesses being used, um, knowingly or unknowingly, to facilitate this. And then those those three locations, those three doors, uh, might be much further away from the port of Rotterdam as well. I mean, I think one thing that you, you, you mentioned that is so critical to understanding the complexity of the cocaine market is how embedded it is within the legal trade. I feel like it's very easy to think of these illicit economies as working independently, but it's so entrenched that um, it's, it's hard to discern. I was reading this article about, because um, there has been a rise in cocaine seizures in West Africa. And one of the um, experts was advocating for increased security of West African ports. And the West African port authorities were saying, well, okay, but what about turnover rates? Like we need to remain competitive. We need to, I mean, give us the infrastructure in order to do this efficiently, fast and weather, but otherwise... Um, given that, you know, it's just entrenched in the legal trade. Um, but that brings me to, to my next question, which is that there's a really strong narrative um, that organized crime groups have been empowered by globalization, that they've, they have benefited from increased transportation um, networks and improved technology. But you, you actually open your article saying that 
yes, that's true, but they also work within local realities. And I think that ties kind of well, from my understanding, to your <laughs> concept of structural embeddedness. And I was hoping you could just explain that for us. Yeah, of course. Now, this this element of structural embeddedness, um, this theoretical concept, we use it indeed to, to make clear how the local context of where in this case, the cocaine still needs to be taken out of the trade somehow. And, you know, it's usually part of a legal trade and then you need to get it out. Um, that still happens in specific locations. And those locations have characteristics that are sometimes not so unique. Sometimes it's just, you know, a similar system that might be in the port of Singapore or Vancouver or whatever. Um, but sometimes we're also talking about characteristics that are typical for here. And then, for instance, one of those things that we talked about as well is Antwerp, as well as Rotterdam, actually, because recently we tried to do a comparison with Antwerp. That publication is not ready yet, but um, both of those ports are have new and old areas. They are historically important ports, so they have areas that are also very old. They're very close to the city, usually. Um, and so this means also they have, they have structural um, characteristics, just a physical location, um, the way they're made, the way they're close to um, a neighborhood where oftentimes in the past people would have worked um, or lived who actually worked on those terminals. Um, so those historic sites have specific dynamics that help facilitate or that can help prevent um, crime from occurring. And on the other hand, you have newer facilities, newer facilities, which are often much more a consequence of, of the, the scale of trade. Um, and so in this regard, it relates to globalization as well. I don't know if either of you have ever been in the port of Rotterdam in those newer areas, but it's worth to just go there if you're ever around here. Take a car. You could take a bike, but it, you, know, you, need, you need to have good physical condition then because it's about a 45-kilometer drive that you can take from the, the city of Rotterdam, and then you're at the outer part of the harbor. Um, and so the, those, those locations are massive-scale trade locations. A lot of them completely automated as well. Um, some of them don't even have people moving the boxes. Um, and there, the possibilities for trafficking are very different than in those historic areas. So that's also the point that we're trying to make. It's this structural embeddedness. You need to look at the, the elements that are that are global in nature. And, and what you mentioned, those, those um, trade-offs between economics and, and security, I guess you could call it, they ring true for many areas, also for Rotterdam, in a different way than they would for West Africa, because I did field work there in the past. Um, I can imagine that things are very different there. And, and this element of, you know, if if trade goes via West Africa before it goes somewhere else in Europe, yeah, there's some tax benefits for those countries. So it's hard to tell them not to want this. Um, and in this regard, also Rotterdam and Antwerp, they might be cooperating on a lot of issues, but they're also competitors. Um, so they influence each other. So that the point we're trying to make, obviously, is that it's, it's, it's interconnected, this local and the global. And indeed, in some publications on organized crime, you see this argument, you know, globalization and la-di-da, and then hence organized crime. Um, but it's more complex than that. You need to really talk about the vulnerabilities of specific locations, specific companies. Um, and by comparing those, that, of course, would be interesting for the future, uh, you can learn more uh, about how do, those things are embedded in, in each location and what we want to look at for the future, because now we talked about the structural part, 
There's also a relational part to this embeddedness. This connection between the people um, is something we want to look at in the future. Um, maybe how are people approached in the, in, in the port of Rotterdam? Is it indeed, like some articles say, it's about threats? Or is it about people having um, vulnerabilities in terms of their finances and hence they're approached with money? Um, those are the things we want, we want to take a look at to learn more about the interconnections between people, um, but we don't know those things yet. Super. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, this is all we had time for today. We will put a link to your article in the show notes for everyone who wants to learn more about it. Thank you very much. Thanks for the, the questions and for giving me the time and opportunity to speak about this. Men go out into the void spaces of the world for various reasons. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to learn more about drugs and source and destination countries, check out our interview with Anthony Lowenstein. If you're interested in hearing more about organized crime in our oceans, check out our interviews with Ian Urbaner and Leila Tucci. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find all the details in the show notes. We will close with a music contribution by the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. Enjoy it and we hope you will tune in for the next episode as well. Some have the keen thirst for scientific knowledge. And others are drawn away from the trodden path by the lure of little voices. The mysterious fascination of the unknown.